first thing I want to ask, how's everybody feeling? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little... <laughs> yeah. well, um, I'm going to start all over again. Uh, I've got my fact checker here, which makes me a little nervous, my wife. Um, I, just to let you know, I'm terrible on dates. I do not know. I know, my, I know our anniversary and my wife's birthday. With five kids, five kids. I don't, I don't know their birthdays. Um, you know, I just for some reason now I can remember business details really well, numbers, uh, events, things like that. But for some reason, you know, dates are tough for me. Um, noticed uh, as we walked down the hall. Tell them what you were. Excited to see. I was excited to see the stations of the cross. You know, that was so cool. Because I remember, I remember a long, long time ago when growing up, you couldn't even have been to the museum without having the Christmas. Um, Dan Harrell. Um, 74 years old, so I'm kind of age group. Some are older, some are younger in this class. Born in 1949 in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, didn't live there very long, but I don't remember it. I was just an infant. Um, and I was born into what we call, and there was a book, who wrote the book? Tom Brokaw wrote a book about the greatest generation. And my parents, were part of that. Um, my mom and dad met in Columbia, South Carolina and got married uh, quickly before he went off to World War II and fought in Italy. Uh, he was wounded. Um, they called it a million dollar wound because it didn't kill him and he got to come home. Got shot in the knee with shrapnel and he always had problems with that knee. I, I think when they worked on it back then, they just kind of went in and looked at it and said, man, that's bad, and sewed you back up. Um, and my mom was a housewife for most of her life. Occasionally she would work. Um, I, but when I talk about the greatest generation, my dad and his brothers were part of it. There were five brothers and one sister who raised all of them. Uh, both of his parents had passed away by the time he was 13, Birmingham, Alabama. And but that generation went and fought this great war, I guess big war, I'm not sure wars are great, um, and came back and they did very simple things, raised their families, went to work. And there wasn't a whole lot of conversation about what they did while they were fighting. They just came, uh, put their hand to the task and did it. And they, that generation um, was very um, industrious, uh, but they believed in some you know, very standard values. Whether you're a Christian or not, they still they had this sense of purpose. Um, and there was a time of um, uh, great financial growth 
in America at that time. Um, so that's kind of what I grew up in. That's how I was raised. Um, when my parents married, my mother was a Baptist. And, um, um, you know, the only thing about Baptists, when they get to heaven, they're going to be shocked that there are no buses. Have you ever driven by a Baptist church seen how many buses they have? You know, there's one nearby, and they got 50 buses. Well, they use those buses to go pick up people and bring them to their church. That's a pretty good idea, but I don't think there are going to be buses in heaven. Um, so... Uh, that time in America was, was very exciting. I don't think people talked about it being exciting. There was not a lot of media uh, to talk about those kinds of things, but it was a very simple time of life. I grew up playing in the woods. In the summers, you would go out after dinner and play all night until 12 o'clock at night, and nobody was worried about you as a young child being out playing outside. Very different than today. Um, so that's kind of the environment. Grew up in the Church of Christ. My father was an elder um, at most of the churches we would go to. And it was always, both my parents, that was the first thing they did was found a church that they wanted to go to. Now, when you grew up in the South during that time, most of the towns we went to, the Church of Christ was very small. And so when I was at school, if the subject came up where you go to church, and I'd tell the kids they had no idea about the Church of Christ. And I always felt a little funny about that because uh, we were really normal, you know, didn't handle snakes and stuff like that. <laughs> not, not that I knew of. Um, I have this vivid memory of one church we went to. There was a big oak tree out front, and that's where all, a lot of the men would go to smoke between Sunday school and church. And I always thought that was a little unusual. Um, uh, another thing about the way I grew up that's pretty unusual is we moved every two, two and a half years, is that correct? How many places? I don't even know. You only went to the same school for two years and right. we all the way to the Anybody here, were they in the military? Anybody here? Did you move a lot? Well, my father was not in the military after he got out of World War II, but he was in the department store uh, real retail business. It studied uh, retail merchandising, University of South Carolina. And apparently in the retail business, if you're, if you're pretty good and you get promoted, they move you. And that's what happened to us. And my, then my dad became a fixer. He was the guy they would call when they had a group of stores that weren't performing well, because all of his stores that he managed always did really well. I said, well, get Harold, he, he can fix it. And so I grew up having to be reintroduced to my classmates, or introduced to my classmates with people who had grown up together and knew each other every two, two and a half years. I didn't think that was unusual because I didn't know any different. But the older I got, got up towards college, one of the things I said to myself is, I'm not doing that. I want to live somewhere and raise my family and have my kids in one place. So 1972, 71 we met, Belmont Church, and 
Nashville is going to be our home. Almost moved to California once, uh, or at least to buy a house out there between my business partner and I. Um, but we decided we could fly there because we spent a lot of time in the music business out there. For those of you who don't know, I was in the music business for almost 40 years, managed her younger sister, Amy Grant. I subsequently started a record company and a publishing company, and then also ran a big entertainment division for Gaylord for about two years. They had film and television and all that. So my life's work was in primarily in the entertainment business. I had no idea when I got out of college that that's the way life would lead me. Um, something I had honestly hadn't really thought about, except Steve Rumfield, who's a member of this class, called me one day, and he was, he was managing the Ryman Auditorium. And he said, we need an intern to come down here. I said, and you're in the communications department. You can get some credit for this. So I went down there. And at the time, they were filming the Johnny Cash show. And I ended up working there for a year and a half, dropped out of Lipscomb and worked there for a year and a half and then went back and finished my degree at Liscombe. And that's where I really got introduced to a lot of people in the music business and a lot of television. We produced the show Screen Gyps did for ABC. And I was just, you know, young guy, probably 19 years old. I, I didn't think it was any big deal. You know, Johnny Cash would ask me to go get him something, a sandwich or something, or June would want something, and I was the kid that had to go do all that stuff. But I got to know all the musicians in the orchestra, then a lot of the guests that were on the show. But, you know, growing up, I had no idea that would happen. The reason I furthered my career in entertainment is um, one day I get a phone call from Kathy's mom, uh, Gloria Grant, who was married to Dr. Burton Grant. A lot of you may have known Burton. He was an gynecologist here, radiologist first, gynecology second. And Amy had done a record, and they started getting phone calls at the house about, could Amy come to a concert? Well, they didn't know anything about music business. I mean, they just didn't know. So she said, would you return these phone calls for me? And I was working at a bank at the time. I said, sure. So after about a year, I had a stack of papers that big, requests and things, and I went to the family and I said, I need to find her a manager. I can't continue to spend any time at work trying to help Amy. So I looked around and met with some people and talked to some people, and I thought, hmm, maybe something's going on here. You know, I might want to give this a try. So I went to the family and said, hey, I think I can do it. And they were appalled. <laughs> I don't think personally against me, but I was vice president of the bank, you know, didn't make any money, but I looked good. Um, and why would you want to do that? In fact, the, I was working for First Tennessee at the time, it left First American, went to First Tennessee, and the chairman of the board came and met with me and proceeded to tell me I was an idiot for doing this. Because all the people around me had no concept of how big a business entertainment was and how big a business. And, and at that time, country music, 
which was the predominant part of music in Nashville, no longer is. There's a lot of music in here. It was really separated from the business community in Nashville. When the business community found out how rich they were, they got real friendly. <laughs> all the bankers, all the financial advisors, all those folks just said, oh, we got to get near this. There's a lot of money there. But for a long time, it was very separate. So I, I began uh, Blanton Harrell and Associates was the name of the first company. There were no associates. It just sounded good. <laughs> and within about three months, uh, a very good friend of mine that was in a class with me at Belmont Church, Mike Blanton, he said, I'm leaving the record company. Let's go in business together. And literally, I went, hey, that sounds like a great idea. That's about how much thought went into what we did. <laughs> um, and so we started Blanton Harrell and proceeded to manage Amy Grant. And the first record that we put out um, under our leadership sold a million copies. And that had never happened in Christian music. And so we felt, hmm, this is pretty good. You know, we were excited and blessed in many ways. Um, let me kind of step back. Before that time, when I went back to Lipscomb and finished, I ran into a guy when I was working at the Johnny Cash Show, and I was not um, in fellowship. I was not um, really doing anything that was blatantly Christian um, and a lot of things that were blatantly not Christian. This guy named Don Fento would show up and look at me and say, I hope you're miserable till you come to know the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was like, this guy's nuts, you know? Well, on a drive back to Jacksonville, Florida, see my parents, I just knew I had to change my life. Grown up in the church, great Christian parents, and so I called Fento, didn't have a cell phone, so I guess he used a hard line. Uh, called Fento, I said, we need to meet. We got together, Unichurch Christ, he baptized me, and my life changed from that point on. So everything after that was hopefully surrendering my life to Christ and growing in him as our business grew, as my family grew, as, as my life began to unfold before me. So there were about 40 years of working with a lot of artists, which can be a challenge because artists are different than a lot of people. That's why they're artists. And I, I came to respect that part of their life that allowed them to think differently and to dream and to do something that maybe could inspire other people with what they created. I have, I have a creative part of me in that I can understand it, I appreciate it, and I honor it. But I don't paint, I don't write music, I don't play music. My wife gave me a guitar for a wedding present and it's been through Amy's hands, now it's in my son's hands. I just, I tried playing it, but it just didn't work for me. Um, I knew I couldn't make a living at it. Um, so Fento really introduced me to the fact, uh, there's a little joke, you've probably heard this. There, let's say there's a whole bunch of people from Church of Christ in line ready to get into heaven, and this shout comes from the front, pearly gates. And then this thing starts 
coming back, coming back, and what, what's going on, what's going on? And everybody said, Wednesday nights don't count. <laughs> um, so Don really introduced a lot of people who were kind of from my circumstances, grown up with a faith background, kind of fallen away from it, that grace was what Jesus had brought. He didn't bring the law. He brought grace. And grace is the fact that no matter how good you think you are, how hard you work at it at being good, you're still not worth your salvation. And that is given to you by the sacrifice that Jesus made. And when I realized that, wow, we don't have to work for this. We have to embrace it and enjoy it and live in it. And so that's what Don brought to so many people. Um, and Don's half crazy. I mean, he's, I think to do what he did and go start that church on Belmont, uh, and so many people were there and being changed in so many ways, um, you, you've got to be a risk taker. You know, you've got to be willing to be criticized by people. Uh, he was fired at Lipscomb. Um, just a lot of things like that. That probably wouldn't happen today, would it? Good hope. Um, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so, to me, that experience has driven my marriage, the raising of our children, and our business life that Mike and I share together. Uh, let me talk a little bit about this woman. Um, <coughs> One night at Belmont Church, um, Dr. and Miss Grant and Kathy showed up to visit. They were in a prayer group with Al Jaynes and Bob Mason, who else? The Ventos. Mm -hmm. Billy Wilson. Bill Wilson. Um, and they'd been in a prayer group together, and somebody told them, Don's preaching at this church, why don't you all go visit? And they were at West End Church of Christ. And I came and visited with her, and I saw her, and I went, whoa, how do I meet her at church and with her parents? And I don't remember how it all happened, because I was kind of in a love zone, you know, just wow. Um, so we went out very shortly after that. The Masons, Bob and Mamie used to feed me a good meal once a week because I didn't have enough money to eat great. And they were good friends with Burton and Gloria, and they kind of played matchmaker for Kathy and I, unknown to us. And so we married, uh, we met in August. August and married the next August. She went back to school in Boston to Wellesley College and then came back and uh, finished at Vanderbilt. And we have five children and nine grandchildren. We have six granddaughters and three grandsons. The youngest grandson was born a month and a half ago. Halloween. Halloween. What's his full name? William Cole Murphy. They live in London, and they call him Liam. Liam. So we have all of our kids and grandkids here except for the Murphy family there in London. And we'll probably go there first of January to meet our new grandson 
and spend some time with them. But all of our kids grew up in Nashville. Uh, one of the things I used to tell them, I said, because Nashville then was, my oldest son is 46. Mm -hmm. Whew, I remembered one. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I told one of, one of my kids, it might have been Grant, I said, Nashville's still small enough for people, if you do something, get in trouble, I'm going to know about it. So I loved having that leverage over them. It didn't always help, but it was at least something I could have comfort in. If they were up to mischief, I was going to find out or Kathy was going to find out about it. So they grew up with aunts and uncles, grandma and grandpa, and eventually my parents moved back here. Um, they grew up with a lot of family, which I didn't do. I didn't know my cousins until 15, 20 years ago. I knew who they were, but I didn't really know them, didn't talk to them, any of that stuff. So that was something that was really important to me, and Kathy's family really allowed that to happen for me. And that's something that I kind of revel in, you know, and enjoy. Um, a lot of times when we have fa fa family gatherings, I don't say much. I sit in a chair and just kind of watch, you know, because here are all these people that love each other and know each other and put up with each other, as you have to do in a family. And that just meant so much to me to have that experience. How much time do we have? We've got about 15 more minutes. Okay. Time to baptize somebody? Okay. <laughs> um, let me look at this. Got a couple other notes here. I'm going to write some of this stuff down. <coughs> How many people in this room are aware of Charlie Munger? He just passed away, 99. He was um, partner in Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett. Charlie was an unusual fellow, brilliant statistician in his mind, figure things out, great investor. Um, in fact, one of the things he, he said in just before he died, he built a house probably 50 years, maybe 60 years ago, lived in the same house. He said, I got a lot of rich friends and they build these huge big houses. They're not happy. I got my house, that I, that's all I need. Same way with Warren Buffett. So. I really respect those men for those things that they did in their lifestyle. They never talked about faith, which bothered me a little. But I think both of them have to have had some faith because they grew up in that environment where it was important. Um, they never talked against it. Um, but Charlie had an incredible view on life about, he said, if you are faced with a decision, invert it. In other words, we're going here, and you really need going there. He says, okay, let's say we're going there. And inverting a question in your life or a, a way to invest a lot of times gives you the best answer. I thought, that's pretty cool. He also gave $180 millions to Michigan to build a dormitory. It was a big controversy because it didn't have any windows in it. And they say, Charlie, why no windows? He said, I don't want the students to have a view outside. 
we're going to build a nice atrium inside in places where they can socialize and be with each other. But only thing I want them to do in their room is to study and sleep. And I want them to get out. How many people think like that? Isn't that pretty interesting? Um, but enough of those guys. Um, <laughs> let's talk about some big changes in the last 15 or 20 years. Cell phone. How many people here grew up with a phone in the kitchen that had a long cord on it? <laughs> and your mom would be over there cooking and talking to somebody on the phone. How many has one of those now? Computer. Internet. Now, I'm not saying all these things are great and good, but they have radically changed the ability to communicate and get distracted. If you've got kids that are 20, younger than 20 up to about 35, and they come to your house, what are they doing? Hey, how you doing, Bob? What'd you say? So that technology in many ways has been helpful to us. I mean, if she's going somewhere, I want to know where she's at, I want to know if she's safe. I know I can call her at any time or I can text her. How different is that than, you know, how long has the cell phone been around? 15, 20 years? So what a difference that makes for the good in some ways and for the negative side in some ways. Same thing with the internet. I mean, we'll be watching um, a show that we like and we recognize an actor in there and we have no clue who they are. You could Google it. it. Gives you their whole credits of what movies, TV shows, where they came from, where they're in, in seconds. You know, the, the way we have access. There's something that's um, come up also, there's a new tech called artificial intelligence. Now, that's a bit of an oxymoron to me. <laughs> but artificial intelligence is the technology that a lot of people are saying is going to replace what we do as humans in our work and in our life. Uh, to me, that's a little scary. Um, it could be, but in certain circumstances, I asked my daughter last night, have you ever used it? She said, I've got some resumes. She's moving to Richmond, and she's putting out a resume, and I said, rework my, and she apparently spoke her resume into it or typed it in, and it came back, you know, a little more robust, hopefully truthful, all those things. Um, so that's one of the big changes that's come into our society that I'm not sure where it will go. Um, there are a lot of people who are concerned about it, and there are a lot of people who are very excited about it. Um, I'm going to talk to you about something that I think is very important that could happen in Nashville. Has anybody heard of a ministry in Atlanta called City of Refuge? City of Refuge was started about 25 years ago by a guy named Bruce Deal, D-E-E-L. And he's written a book called Trust First. And he was a pastor in some small denomination church, I don't even know what it was, and felt called to start 
helping and working people in the inner city of Atlanta who were homeless, prostitution, drugs, and also sex trade 25 years ago. Someone donated to him, I think, like 20 acres in the worst neighborhood in Atlanta, and that's where he started. And his book, Trust First, is his philosophy on how to help people who are in those circumstances. And he trains his staff diligently every day to say, when we bring in Sally or we bring in Bob, if they can learn to trust us, then they will know how to trust God. So, and the whole thing is, he, the book is written about people who most have been successfully saved by this ministry. Most of them fell down three or four times before they got totally fixed or well. And it was from, that's okay. We still love you. We're still with you. Rather than say, hey, you screwed up, you're out. Because if you're in a lot of rehab programs and stuff like that, that's what happens to you. Trust first is so biblical. Jesus, to this day, no matter what you've done, no matter how <coughs> many sins you've committed or how wrong you are, he still trusts in you as you trust in him. It never changes. never will. And that, to me, is an incredible story. And the reason I'm excited about um, City of Refuge is they're thinking about, uh, they're looking for the land here in Nashville to start working with the homeless, women who are uh, being put in the sex trade, uh, uh, also um, people with various addictions. They live on the campus. They are vocationally trained. And when they graduate, they're still part of the family. A lot of them come back to help and work there. But the success rate of people who cannot be helped by government-sponsored programs is amazing. It's like 90-something percent. And they keep the records not because they don't take any government funds, they keep the records so they can show people the true facts about what can happen to help somebody if you simply trust them. And trusting them boils down to letting them fail and acting like, that's okay, and staying with the program, teaching them, training them, loving them, fail again, that's okay. And he has a few examples in the book of people who did not make it, but most did. And to me, what a great, you know, why hadn't we all thought that way? It's, it's hard to trust people. Have you ever had a friend that kind of said something about you? Well, you kind of lose trust for them, you know? You just, and if you lose trust for somebody, what happens? Separates you. Who's in charge of separation? The devil. The devil is in charge of trying to pull us apart. If we look at all the problems in the world today, war, famine, you know, all kind of stuff, is it an accident? What does it say in the Bible? 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Against powers and principalities. There is an unseen world of evil that is trying to influence every part of the world. Someday, Jesus is going to literally come back and remake this earth the way he wanted it to be. I believe we will live here in physical bodies with him. I don't think heaven is somewhere way up in the unknown. I think God wants to reclaim. Jesus wants it to happen. That's why he was willing to sacrifice himself for all of us. Now, theologically, you may have a different plan for that, but I'm betting on the one that we'll, we'll have bodies. We will eat. I don't know about, you know, being married and all that stuff. That's probably a little more complicated. But I think we will be together and we'll have the opportunity to rejoice in perfection. Imagine, at our age, imagine this, no sickness, no crime, no taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine how different what God had created in the garden will be returned, will be fully restored. And we will live there and be with each other forever. I think that's pretty exciting. It's a lot more exciting to understand that in my heart than to say, pearly gates, go up there, you know, all this stuff. It's ethereal. I believe God wants us to reclaim the earth and us as he had intended it. He's gotten a lot of grief over the years. How many times... Have you heard people say, well, if there really was a God, why is there a war? Hmm? It's because of fallen angels, because of Satan. It's not God's fault. We're going through a a very difficult time in this country right now politically. Um, I'm going to get dangerous here a minute. Um, Voted for Trump the first time, voted for Biden the second time. The reason that had nothing to do with A, B, and C. The second time, I just said, there's nothing in Trump that gives me the fruits of the Spirit. There's no fruit of the Spirit in the man. Here's the problem. God allows men of the world to lead nations. Didn't say they were going to be Christian. Didn't say they were going to be good people. He allows people to come into office, to be leadership, to divine his own purpose. Now, there are a lot of people who are Christian that think that's why Trump is coming in. I, I, I don't know that. I don't see that in his life. I do know that whoever it is, maybe not Trump, maybe not Biden, maybe somebody we don't know yet, God's got a plan. And when that person gets there, we need to pray for them, not criticize them. All the leaders. I pray for our governor, our mayor, our town council. All of them know who they are. You know, um, these people in leadership positions have some authority on what happens on this earth. All that's going to be made right when Jesus comes back. But until the, it happens, 
God's allowing things to happen on the earth that bring this plan together. It's no accident. And that, I think God allows some bad people to be in charge. Maybe whoever gets to be the next president is God's showing, ha ha, I told you. We need to trust in him. Not political system, not in money. Uh, those things are fleeting. Um, Charlie Munger, as I said, just died. He was worth $2.8 billion. Gave it, he, it's in his will. He's giving it all away. Warren Buffett, Buffett's worth $60 billion. He's giving it all away. Warren Buffett still lives in the same house he built 60 years ago. Goes to McDonald's every morning and gets Egg McMuffin. <laughs> Drives a four-year-old car. Now, there's one extravagance. He's got a jet. But he needs that jet to meet with a lot of the people he meets with. So, um, one of the things I did, five more minutes? Yeah. One of the things I did when I turned 65, I, I said, I'm going to stay curious. And curiosity is different for people. For me, it was, I get up every morning and I read, I study a little bit, have some time with the Lord. And then as I read things that are interesting to me, I'll kind of chase them, either that day or later on, just to find out about something. Because I realize that if I keep the old ticker up here going, you know, it'll, it'll be healthier. And that's one way I do it. But I want to be curious. Um, I like to sit on a plane when she's not with me. And not that I don't want her with me, but if I'm on a plane somewhere, I always ask the person next to me, what do you do? All of a sudden, you hear a story like I'm telling you today from somebody you've never met and may never meet again. But that's the human experience that we should be excited about and curious about. I taught at Lipscomb for about five years. I taught a music business course. And I was amazed at how these young people were so unaware of historical things around them and in our country. So I tried to encourage them, say, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Ardmore, Tennessee. Tell me about it. Well, they go blank. They knew none of the history, how, how it was founded. They didn't know who the present leaders were. Those things are important. They need to be interesting to us, even at our age. Um, I, I just think that curiosity, so I started thinking, okay, Andrew Jackson, when he was president, only came home to Nashville three times in eight years. Anybody figure out why? There weren't any roads. <laughs> it took two months, mainly by water. Can we imagine that? I can drive here to anywhere, and I can drive all the way to L.A. in, what, three days? Probably do it quicker than that if I don't stop. Um, why, why were cities built, say, east? Where was the location of cities from east of the Rockies, predominantly? Why were those cities? Why was Nashville built? Water. Rivers. If you look at the eastern part of the United States, the growth of cities came when Wow, 
we're going to live here because we can get other places on the water. Now, west of the Rockies, other <laughs> cities built, other than San Francisco out there. Five or cities built going west. Railroad. Where the railroad went and they could pick up cattle, that's where they built the town. Wasn't a whole lot of thought in it, you know. If you've been in certain parts of Texas, you show up and you look at it and you go, why did they build a city here? Because it's nothing, you know. It's just like flat. Lubbock, Texas. Anybody been there? You can look both ways for 200 miles. So, if we have understandings about why things are today and how things developed, it gives us a better understanding of people, gives us a better understanding of history, and I think that helps us with how God works, how our faith works. Don't just blindly go through life and go, why is that hotel there? Well, it's on an interstate, and there's a lot of traffic coming by, and people are going to stop there, you know? McDonald's. How does McDonald's make most of their money? The company you buy stock in. It's not them selling hamburgers. They only own 2,100 of the 40,000 stores. They make their money off franchise fees and real estate rental to the franchisees. Pretty smart deal. That may not be important to you, but that's really interesting to me. They were smart enough, and the margin in the money that comes in from the rent and the royalty override they get from the restaurant is a lot higher from the margin they get out of the 2,100 stores where they're selling burgers. And it's also a lot more predictable. Interesting. There's all kind of things interesting, right? Institution of higher learning, y'all doing that for the students there? I wish the students were as curious as you. Because <laughs> <laughs> what you said is exactly right. Um, my wife has, um, how do I say this the right way? Um, <laughs> she questions, has questions about a lot of things, and I see her effectiveness mainly with our grandchildren and her uh, desire to introduce them to ideas, um, books, stories, lessons, and those kinds of things. That um, fortunately, I think my kids support that, uh, but. It's so exciting to see um, how she can connect with our our grandkids. Um, now that some of them are getting old enough where they can connect with me, I tell them shut up and sit down. I want to talk to you. you know, that doesn't go very well when they're four or five years old. They look at you like, oh, my granddaddy just yelled at me. Um, so, a lot of dynamics in life. Um, uh, I've been blessed. Um, uh, I, I do not know how it turned out this way other than, you know, I didn't talk much about the music thing. People always want to know, who have you met? You know, one of the most interesting and exciting things that I've done is this last year, Amy was 
at the Kennedy Senior Awards as an honoree. And along with her were a group called U2 and George Clooney and who was a black singer? Wasn't Aretha Franklin, it was. And then some woman that was a composer. It was unbelievable. Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight. To be in the room, private room with those people and there was no celebrity vibe. Everybody was being friends, <clears throat> being excited to be honored. And Amy's back there uh, this weekend. For, once you're presented the award, you're encouraged to come back as often as you can as an alumni. Uh, it's great to see somebody honored for the work they've done. Um, and no matter how famous they are, they appreciate it. It means something to them. Because a lot of the awards they get, a lot of adulation they get, doesn't mean anything to them, you know. But when it's something like the Kennedy Center Awards, it's very prestigious, and that's probably one of the most uh, important things that I think is a, me being involved with Amy. Um, and you don't have any say in it, they decide. So it's not a rigged system. <clears throat> There's certain things in the music business you can rig, Grammy Awards and stuff like that, but this one is very small committee. They're in charge and they decide. And it's interesting, uh, one of the board members, very successful businessman from Cincinnati, is a believer, and he came to the board one time, he said, why have you never honored a Christian artist? And they said, well, who would you suggest? This was two years ago. Oh, I'd suggest Amy Grant. Let's do that. Wasn't us calling, campaigning for it and all that stuff. God had it set up to happen at that time. You know, and it happened. Um, life's been a blessing. I hope there's more years for it to happen. So, any, any quick questions? God bless me, he's held. It's good. She's still recovering from a bypass. She's brain injury, but she's continuing to recover. She, uh, the doctors told her it'd take two years to totally get her straight. I mean, she, if you met her and talked to her, she'd be fine. You talk to her the next morning, she may not remember the conversation. That's getting better, but for the family, that's been a shock. You know, but otherwise she's in, in good health and being looked after very well. Anything else? Thank y'all. I will tell y'all, in 1976, let me, let me I think tell you it this is. One thing. My wife found this. This is my dad's Bible. And it's the, this was shocking, New International Version. For him, being a King James guy, I was pretty shocked at it. And I think the reason he went to this, he was teaching a Bible class in prison in Jacksonville, Florida. And I think he used this so he could communicate with the guy. So. In 1976, I was at West End at church and went to Camp Weeby. And I was the counselor for the uh, ninth and 10th grade girls. In the, ca in the cabin next to me uh, uh, <clears throat> was, and I, I've just lost her name, but anyway, the counselor in that was for the 11th and 12th grade girls. Amy Grant was one of those girls. And she would, we, you know, we had, it was in a circle and we had younger girls on one side and it came on around to the older girls. Lisa knows about this. So um, 
and it would, we would be in the camp. We always got them in the cabins. We had a devotional. We tried to get them into bed and everything. And everybody, you could hear it all over the camp, people talking and just little girls jabbering and everything. And then Amy would start playing. She'd start playing her guitar and singing. And my cabin immediately got quiet. The next one got quiet as they, as each cabin got quiet and they could hear. And suddenly it was just silence with all of the cabins except for Amy singing. That was my first experience with hearing Amy and Grant sing. So um, next week we have Carrie Patterson's going to tell us his story. So, uh, and then Craig Bledsoe is going to come and tell us his story one of these days. So, I've, I've asked, um, I've sent something to all of the elders who have not spoken so far and said, hey, our class wants to hear from the elders. What, what is your story? So, hopefully uh, the emails haven't started just overpowering my email yet. <laughs> um, I feel sure that's going to happen. Well, but maybe we're just setting the bar there and, and you know, they can't go higher or maybe there will be higher to go. Who knows? So, but thank you all so much. Next week will be our last class until February. So uh, have a good week. And, again, thank you so much, Dan.